0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan
3: Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a
4: long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you become a bird watcher during the pandemic? Perhaps you now bring binoculars on walks, or maybe you sit on the porch checking out the bickering sparrows, or linger in bed listening to morning doves. Birds are amazing. They can fill the sky with song and They wow us with their lovely plumage. Their physical feats during migration would make an Olympic athlete gasp.
3: Their pectoral muscles, their chest muscles that power their flight, expand by more than 50% in mass, and their heart muscle mass increases 30 to 50%. And then they take off. They make this 7 to 11-day nonstop flight across the western Pacific, beating their wings continuously. They're not waterproof. They can't rest on the ocean.
4: Birds have been there for us, but we haven't always been there for them. You may be surprised to learn that they've suffered greater extinction than any other class of vertebrates. Three billion birds, three billion, a third of all birds, have vanished from North America in the last 30 years. Is there hope on the horizon? I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, how birds make those extraordinary migrations and why they and their flyways are disappearing. Can new tracking technology help protect both After all, our love of birds has a record of accomplishment. In the 19th century, it helped kick off the modern conservation movement. Now that's something to crow about. This episode is for the birds, but you're welcome to listen too.
4: Ah, the sound of winged dinosaurs during migration. Birds are the only dinosaurs that managed to survive the mass extinction of 65 million years ago that did in so many of the other species on Earth. Birds are the sole surviving lineage of the entire dinosaur family tree. But today, birds face another threat, and it's not a rock from space, but the activities of a certain mammalian species known as Homo sapiens.
1: As part of their migration, tens of millions of birds travel along an enormous aerial path known as the East Asian Australasian Flyway. It extends from Alaska all the way down to New Zealand, funneling millions of birds through the narrow waste of the Yellow Sea between China and the Korean Peninsula, where birds stop to rest and feast. Now, if you've never been there, ornithologist Scott Wiedensahl helps us imagine what the largest mudflat on Earth looks like.
3: And it looks like featureless, just featureless gray mud when you walk on it. But when you dig down under it, it's a stew of marine invertebrates, worms and tiny little mollusks that are a buffet for shorebirds, some of which have just flown nonstop for more than 6,000 miles tens of thousands, and some days hundreds of thousands of migratory shorebirds are moving back and forth in these. And when they come sweeping past you, you're standing out on the mudflats, they simply part around you like water around a rock in a river. And so within seconds, you find yourself enveloped in this maelstrom of wings and motion and sound, this rushing of wings and small vocalizations from these birds. And then they land in the mud and begin feeding instantly, without any preamble, as if they they haven't a second to lose. They have very little time to regain the weight that they've lost, to double their weight again in order to make the next five or six or so thousand mile flight up to the Arctic to begin their breeding season up there. These birds spend their lives in constant motion. And twice a year, all of these migrants from this enormous flyway come to rest for a few precious weeks on the Yellow Sea to get the resources they need to complete their journey.
4: The East Asian-Australasian flyway is threatened by development. About 60 to 70 percent of the migratory feeding grounds along the shores of the Yellow Sea have been destroyed. The fertile mudflats have become industrial sites and cities.
1: Scott Widensaw co-founded Project Snowstorm, which tracks and studies snowy owls. He has written dozens of books about wildlife. One was a finalist for the 2000 Pulitzer Prize. His recent book is A World on the Wing. The global odyssey of migratory birds. He
4: describes how these small international traveling critters prepare for non-stop trips that might cover 6,000 miles at a hop. And what happens when crucial habitats like the mudflats along the Yellow Sea disappear?
3: What is left is of just incalculable uh, value to these birds. They simply cannot make these journeys without these places like the Yellow Sea. For example, there's a, there's a bird called the bar-tailed godwood. It's a pigeon-sized shorebird that breeds across Eurasia and into western Alaska. And the birds from western Alaska make the longest non-stop migration of any land bird in the world. They migrate non-stop, first of all, from Alaska to New Zealand and Australia. I mean, that's a 7,200 mile non-stop flight across the Pacific Ocean. They spend the austral summer, our winter, in New Zealand and Australia, and then they fly 6,000 miles from there to the Yellow Sea and another 5,000 miles from there back to Alaska. So they make this 18,000-mile-a-year trip, and it's only possible for, th- for them to do that because of incredibly rich food resources at three points on the Earth's surface in in western Alaska, on the the North Island of New Zealand, and the Yellow Sea. And if you take away any of those three places, this whole migratory system collapses.
1: The scale of migration you said is billions of birds. And what I didn't realize, and maybe this will come as a surprise to many people, is that most birds migrate after dark. Why do they yes. migrate at night?
3: Yes, even, even most of the birds that are active by day, like most of our songbirds. Well, the, the, the night offers a number of advantages. The night air is cooler, so that the risk of overheating is less. I mean, after all, birds have a much higher metabolism than people, their body temperatures, like averages about 104 Fahrenheit. It is also um, moister, so the risk of dehydration is lower, although birds have ways of avoiding dehydration that has more to do with their internal organs than the outside air. It's less turbulent, um, so they they don't get buffeted as much, and there are fewer predators at night. I have wished for years that there were some way to strip away the darkness at night during migration season so people could actually see what's going on up there because it would easily be one of the greatest natural spectacles on earth. Over virtually every household in North America every year, millions and millions of migrant birds pass during spring and fall. Now, it turns out you can see them, at one remove anyway, by looking at weather radar. Doppler weather radar does a really good job of showing up what meteorologists call bioclutter or bioscatter, which are birds and insects and bats aloft in the night sky. And in fact, the newer version of Doppler radar, what's known as dual polarization radar, is so accurate that we can actually calculate exactly how many birds per cubic kilometer of airspace are up there. And it is hundreds of millions to billions on a week-to-week basis moving across North America. About, about 3 billion migratory birds come across the Gulf of Mexico and hit the Gulf Coast from Texas to Florida um, every year, for example.
1: You know, I watch the Canada geese overhead when they migrate, and my first thought often is, how do they know when it's time to leave? And I try to imagine that moment where one goose maybe decides, it's time, everyone. Scott, how do they know when the moment is right to go?
3: Well, the trigger for migration is, as with many things in nature, um, linked to the photo period, to the changing ratio of daylight and darkness. As the photo period changes, that produces hormonal changes in the bird's body. And the other thing to remember about migration is it's not a learned behavior. Now, ducks and geese will travel in mixed age flocks where young birds will learn specific routes and specific stopover areas from from older birds that they're migrating with. But virtually every other bird comes out of the egg with a genetically coded set of instructions that says to fly in a certain direction at a certain time of the year for a certain length of time, it's not a conscious decision. As the photoperiod changes, as these hormones start flooding their body, they just get this itch and it becomes this this compulsion. And often these birds will make like exploratory flights, like they're almost ready to go and they'll take off just after dark, but I'm not quite, and they'll come back down and wait another night or two. The trigger for a bird deciding to migrate today versus tomorrow or the day after is often depends on the weather, if the the winds seem right and they just can't stop themselves anymore, and off they go.
1: Well, let's look at physically how it is that these birds are able to make these uh, migratory journeys. I just want to see that this is true because we have hummingbirds in our yard. We're very lucky to have hummingbirds. Is it true that a hummingbird can fly nonstop, Across the Gulf of Mexico?
3: Twice a year, yep. At least 600 miles nonstop in about a 24-hour period. Although we also know that if conditions are bad over the Gulf, if they're making a um, what would normally be a fairly effortless 18- or 20-hour flight from, say, the Yucatan Peninsula to the coast of Louisiana or Alabama, if they hit storms out over the Gulf, it may take them 25, 35, even 40 hours to make that flight, beating their wings at 60 beats a second but they do that by laying on tremendous amounts of of fat before they make the journey even a, a hummingbird, hummingbird does even <laughs> a
1: hummingbird but there's no room well, for fat these are tiny little birds you would think
3: but the lean weight of a, a ruby-throated hummingbird is about 2.5 grams a little bit more than a penny i have weighed ruby-throated hummingbirds before they made their trip across the gulf of mexico that weighed more than 5 grams they had basically doubled their weight and all of that was fat under their skin in their body cavity But fat is a tremendously dense fuel for these birds. By one calculation, a songbird flying across the western Atlantic from the northeastern coast of the U.S. um, down to the northeastern coast of South America, it's about a 100-hour flight, if they were burning gasoline instead of fat, they would get 720,000 miles to the gallon. So they're tremendously, tremendously efficient um, little machines. But the fact of the matter is, Molly, that sometimes... They just don't have enough fuel to make it. And every spring during these enormous trans-gulf migrations of not just hummingbirds, but songbirds of many different species moving back and forth across the Gulf of Mexico, millions of them die every year making that transit. So it's this relentless selection pressure generation after generation for hundreds of thousands or millions of years that has created these birds that do feats that seem impossible to us.
1: Well, let's look more closely at the, um, at the behavior of the bar-tailed godwit. I think you describe they put on so much weight that their bodies jiggle like water <laughs> balloons. Tell us a little bit about the uh, bar-tailed godwit and how it gets ready to fly.
3: Sure. So bar-tailed godwits will gather up in late summer, in, in August and early September along the shores of the Bristol Bay in um, southwestern Alaska and uh, particularly on the mudflats of rivers like the Ikigik River where they feed ravenously on marine invertebrates. And they will more than double their weight in about two weeks. They're 55% fat, By the time they're ready to fly, they are the fattest wild birds anybody has ever documented. And yes, they feel squishy when you pick them up. You know, they jiggle like water balloons. And they actually have a hard time getting into the air because they're not walking where they're going for the winter. They got to get all the way to New Zealand. So what they do after they have gained as much weight as they possibly can in this very short period of time, their digestive organs rapidly atrophy. So their stomach and their intestines, their kidneys to a lesser extent, shrink dramatically in size, while at the same time, their pectoral muscles, their chest muscles that power their flight, expand by more than 50% in mass and their heart muscle mass increases 30 to 50%. And then they take off, they make this seven to 11 day nonstop flight across the Western Pacific, beating their wings continuously. They're not waterproof, they can't rest on the ocean. They land in New Zealand, they regrow their guts. They spend the austral summer feeding, and then when it's time to migrate to the Yellow Sea, they go through this whole cycle again. Fly to the Yellow Sea, regrow their guts, feed bulk up in weight, guts shrink down again, they make the, the last four or 5,000 mile flight back to Alaska. I mean, that kind of yo-yo dieting kills people. It is really bad for human health. But uh, Bartell godwit will, will do that, you know, three times a year for 15, 20, 25 years without suffering any kind of ill consequences. In fact, one migration researcher has pointed out that based on blood chemistry, a migratory bird looks like a morbidly obese diabetic with coronary disease who really ought to be heading to the ER rather than taking off on on one of the most laborious physical feats any any animal can undertake.
1: It's extraordinary what these animals can do. Now, Scott, how do do birds get water in flight? Um, If you could address water and also sleep, because they need to sleep some way, don't they?
3: Right, exactly. You need to give your brain rest and you need to give your body fluid. Well, as far as drinking goes, it turns out that birds actually, you know, fat is a terrific fuel, but it doesn't produce much metabolic water. So as they break down the fat, they're not generating much water to keep their cells hydrated. Instead of metabolizing fat, they catabolize muscle mass and organ mass. So they're they're actually some of these birds. Their organs will actually increase in size before their migration because then they can essentially drink liquid from their organs as they break down organ tissue and muscle tissue
1: catabolize. What does that mean?
3: It's a a different metabolic process than metabolism by which um, muscle tissue is broken down as opposed to fat tissue.
1: And then you said then they can actually sip from their organs?
3: Yes. So they're actually withdrawing stored water from their organs and using that to hydrate the rest of their body. So they've got that trick to stay hydrated. Of course, they also have to stay rested. And if you're in continuous powered flight for days or weeks, or in the case of some extraordinary birds, months at a time, where they're where they're in flight continuously for up to ten months, in order to give their brain a rest, they undergo what's known as unihemispheric sleep, where they basically put half of their brain, one hemisphere of their brain, to sleep for five or ten seconds at a time, along with its corresponding eye, and then flip over to the other side, and just keep flipping back and forth and back and forth, and can do that for, in some cases, months. And here's the crazy thing, Molly, even if you take a bird in migratory condition and prevent it from going into unihemispheric sleep, you force it to stay awake, it still won't suffer the effects of sleep deprivation that we all remember from pulling all-nighters in college.
1: The way that you describe it, it almost makes migration sound easy. These sound like extraordinary animals (laughs) that can perform these extraordinary feats. When migration doesn't succeed, what are the reasons for that? What are the most challenging things that these birds face during their migratory flights?
3: We can think of a, a host of reasons, I think, right off the top of anyone's head why migration would be dangerous. I mean, storms and, you know, predators Anytime you're going to a, a new place, exhaustion, you know, not being able to find the food you need. But we've also added so many human-related Um, difficulties and challenges and dangers for bird migration. I mean, one of the most pervasive, frankly, are city lights. Um, You know, these are animals that evolved to navigate at night in part by starlight. And so especially for young birds on their first migration in the fall, naive young birds who've never made the trip before, the light from metropolitan areas has a tendency to draw them in, almost like moths to a flame. And... Of course, when they get into cities, they have these tall, lighted skyscrapers. Um, Birds can become very disoriented by city lights, especially if there's a little bit of moisture in the air, a little bit of haze or humidity or fog in the air. They'll fly into windows. And sometimes thousands or tens of thousands of birds will die in a single night as they're passing through a city like Philadelphia or Chicago or New York.
1: Well, you write that three billion birds, that is a third of all birds, have vanished from North America in the last 30 years. Uh, Are urban lights the primary cause of their vanishing?
3: Uh, There's certainly a cause. I wouldn't necessarily say they're they're the only cause. I mean, there are so many other causes of bird mortality. You know, arguably the single largest uh, source of bird mortality in the United States are actually free-running cats. Um, The Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center calculated a few years ago that both house cats and feral cats kill somewhere between two and four billion birds a year just in the United States. That's you know that's more than windows, more than communication towers, more than speeding cars on highways. I mean and then there's also agrochemicals and habitat loss. I mean there's there's a whole host of reasons. Um, climate change is increasingly an issue because it's changing, the timing of the seasons, it's changing the timing of when food resources are available or whether or not they're available at all. So it's, it's already a, a very challenging effort for a bird to get from point A to point B under the best of circumstances, and we have, we have found many, many different ways to make it more and more challenging for them.
4: Coming up, we continue our discussion with naturalist Scott Widensall as he describes how technology may help us protect essential bird habitat. And a Louisiana birder on the joys of communing with our feathered friends.
2: There was a Carolina wren that was sitting on our back fence and it started singing. And I called back at it and we had an entire conversation.
1: This episode is For the Birds on Big Picture Science.
4: This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash X-N-A-S. As we discuss the remarkable navigational abilities and the endurance of migrating birds, they don't hesitate to cross an ocean or a desert, we're also hearing about new challenges they face, environmental destruction and climate change. In a moment, we'll hear how new technology might help.
1: The problem is habitat loss for migrating birds. Fertile mudflats along the Yellow Sea have been paved over. Agricultural fields have replaced wetlands. Now we're beginning to address those losses, says naturalist Scott Widensall. but what about habitats inland?
3: In fact, the group of birds in North America that are in the deepest trouble are grassland nesting species like meadowlarks and bobolinks and grasshopper sparrows and upland sandpipers. Interestingly, you know, the same scientific paper that came out in 2019 that documented the loss of almost 3 billion birds over the last 50 years in North America also showed that some groups of birds have done extremely well during that time period, and waterfowl and wetland birds are the best example of that. Their populations have rebounded dramatically in the last 30 or 40 years, and the reason for that was because we as a society recognized belatedly the importance of wetland habitats, And we poured a lot of money at the government level, at the private level, into wetland habitat restoration and enhancement and protection. And those birds came bounding back. And we could do the same thing for grassland birds. If we put the same kind of effort and concerted will into restoring and preserving grassland habitats, we can bring those birds back.
4: Now, taking sophisticated technology on a bird outing may seem strange. I mean, We're convening with our feathered friends in the great outdoors, and after all, the traditional tools for birding are simply a pair of binoculars, a notepad, maybe a hat. But modern electronics not only lets casual birders identify and track bird species, it helps conservationists, like Mr. Weidensahl, protect them and their habitats.
1: So Scott, this is going to be hard for you to answer, but what's your favorite migratory bird?
3: Oh man, don't make me do that. That's a terrible thing to do to a person.
1: What's one of them?
3: Well, well I, I've spent more than 25 years studying um, in a really appealing little forest owl called the northern saw owl. It's about the size of a soda can, weighs about as much as a robin. We've banded more than 12,000 of them over the last quarter century at my banding stations in Pennsylvania, and I get as excited about, you know, each new one I catch as I did about, you know, the the, the first one uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, they're, they're just an incredibly appealing, kind of mysterious, um, if I were being perfectly honest, extremely cute little bird. But I've also, in, in recent years, gotten in, deeply involved in studying snowy owls, and there's just something magisterial and charismatic and just sexy about a snowy owl. You know, they've got the the presence of a person. They've got those killer yellow eyes, you know, and and it's, you know, when the snowy owls come south in the wintertime, you know, you're not going to see a polar bear walking through your neighborhood. But if you live in the, in the northern United States or southern Canada, the snowy owls bring a piece of the Arctic with them every year. And I've, I find that I find that entrancing.
1: In fact, that the banding of the birds and the use of digital technology and the miniaturization of that technology has allowed scientists to track birds at a higher resolution than we were ever able to do. How is that filling out the picture of migratory behavior? And why is that an important picture for us to have?
3: Sure, because until fairly recently, the only only birds that we were able to track um, across any kind of distance were birds that were large enough that we could put you know satellite based transmitters on so basically the size of a you know a large duck or a small hawk or larger. Well, the vast majority of the world's migratory birds are significantly smaller than that. Most of them are little songbirds, and we had no way of tracking them across distance without, you know, literally following that bird with a a handheld or airplane um, fitted um, radio receiver. Well, as you say, because of miniaturization, now we have transmitters that are small enough, literally, to put on hummingbirds that weigh a fraction of a fraction of a gram, and automated receiver stations now increasingly all across the world. That will pick up the signals of these, these birds or or bats or even migratory insects as they're using this now to track monarch butterflies um, as they're moving across the landscape. And so it's it's finally allowing us to peer inside that black box of migration, to find out. You know, where are these birds going? What roots are they using? What habitats are they using? What are the most important places for them? Where are the most dangerous parts of their, of their migration? And I think even more importantly, we're, we're, we're discovering where the most important places are for us to put our conservation dollars. We've, we've never had enough money for conservation. We have to be very intelligent about where we spend it. And, you know, there just are not enough bird watchers in the world to find these places using kind of boots on the ground observation. But by using these technologies, we can identify where these choke points are, where these where these most critical habitats are for birds, and then focus our conservation attention there.
1: There's a project from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology called eBird that is doing exactly what you are outlining here. And I wonder if you could just describe how how that data collection are leading to solutions to help
3: save some of these birds. Sure, you're right. So eBird is... is it was a project of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and it was mostly a, a way to give bird watchers an opportunity to report their sightings. And it has grown in less than 20 years into the largest wildlife observational database on the planet. They get like 100 million sightings on an annual basis, tens of millions of checklists that are sent in almost on a, on a monthly basis, which has allowed scientists to get this astoundingly detailed, highly granular idea of what species are where and what numbers on any given day and you combine that with for example high resolution satellite imagery from NASA showing surface water conditions in the central valley of California in the agricultural lands of the central valley and Scientists with the Nature Conservancy realized they could combine those two to say, okay, we'll know from eBird exactly when the peak of the shorebird migration coming through the Central Valley occurs in the spring and fall, and we can use the satellite imagery from NASA to determine how much water is out there, and then we can pay farmers relatively small amounts of money to flood their rice fields to precise depths at precise times of the year for just long enough to catch the peak of the shorebird migration create tens of thousands of acres of high quality habitat and do it for pennies on the dollar compared to actually buying land and permanently conserving it.
1: And it's called it's called a pop-up wetland. Yep.
3: And the, and the beauty of it is, if you have a year when there's abundant rainfall and there's a lot of surface water, you don't have to do it at all. So again, it's a, it's a way to use the limited resources we have for conservation in a smart, very targeted way and using these layers of, of big data, you know, with a capital B and a capital D, to understand where birds are and find solutions, you know, to make the world a safer, better place for them.
1: Well, Scott Widensall, thank you so much for speaking to us and, and providing this this bird's eye view of an extraordinary feat.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
4: Ornithologist and naturalist Scott Widensaw is the co-founder of Project Snowstorm, which tracks and studies snowy owls. His recent book is A World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds. Now, he said that there are not enough bird watchers out there to provide all the information that scientists need to protect them, but... There are a lot of bird watchers out there, and if you aren't one already, what's it like to be hooked on spotting a white-throated sparrow or a red-breasted nuthatch?
2: I am Cassandra Ford. I am a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Biology at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette.
1: Cassandra is studying fish as part of her Ph.D. work in evolutionary biology, but the spectacle of Louisiana bird migration caused her casual interest in birds to take wing.
4: Together with binoculars, she now uses apps, such as the eBird app that Scott described to track birds. And some of these birds are losing crucial habitat as the Mississippi River Delta slowly slips into the sea.
1: Cassandra, we should probably get some of the terms out of the way. Do you prefer birding or birdwatching? And I'm, I'm reminded of the debate between uh, Star Trek fans, between using Trekkie or Trekker, and I want to use the right term.
2: <laughs> um, I call myself a birder because I am trying to keep track somewhat of the birds that I see. For me, I'm more interested in watching the birds and interacting with the birds and seeing what different species we're seeing over time, as opposed to just wandering around a park to see what I can see.
1: Can you describe what it's like to be out, and for lack of a better word, communing with the birds? What is what is that like for you?
2: It's so peaceful, and it's... One of the ways that I can really rejuvenate myself Uh, so with my work I'm indoors a lot sitting in front of my computer for hours at a time and getting to go outside and interact with nature for me it's a way of kind of resetting.
1: Have you had a moment where you looked at a bird where you felt like you were really relating to them or just having in kind of another zone watching them?
2: Definitely yes Uh, I was actually just sitting on my back patio the other week eating dinner outside and there was a Carolina Wren that was sitting on our back fence and it started singing and I called back at it and we had an entire conversation just back and forth. I mean, I don't know what I was saying and I don't know what he was saying, but we
1: were having a conversation. Can you give us the sounds that you were making <laughs> to this Carolina wren?
2: So I call it singing. Um, I'm not that great at singing, so it's actually more of like a shushing noise that I make. Um, but it was calling back at me with its song, and I was going
1: shh 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 shh. Okay, so you're you're somewhat of a Carolina wren whisperer, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> This gets at what some of the uh, the tricks are for successful birding, and it sounds like one of them, obviously, is patience, definitely. no sudden movements. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are, what are some other tricks for successful birding?
2: I would say um, definitely being quiet. I, I mean, obviously, if, if you're in a group, you want to let people know if you see something cool, but I actually do a lot of my birding by myself or maybe just with one other person. But... One of the things that I love about birding is that you can honestly do it pretty much anywhere, and you don't need a ton of fancy and expensive equipment to do it. There are some free apps out there that you can use to help you figure out what birds you've seen. There's an app called Merlin, and it helps you uh, with bird IDs. So you can plug in where you are when you've seen the bird and then give it like a relative size of the bird and the colors. And it'll be like, here are some possible options for the bird that you saw.
1: We heard earlier about the app eBird from Cornell University. Do you use eBird? Yes, I do. So Merlin, like
2: I said, lets you or helps you with identifying what bird species you're looking at. And then you can keep track of what bird species you've seen
1: using eBird. I know this is such a basic question, but I really want to know what's your favorite bird? Are you able to identify what your favorite bird is? I think my favorite bird is a summer
2: tanager. Uh, it's a bright red bird that has black wings. Is it also known as a scarlet tanager? That's actually a separate species. The summer tanager has black wings, whereas the scarlet tanager is actually
1: all red. I understand that you're from Wisconsin, or at least you went to school in Wisconsin. Is that right? Do you, do you also hail from Wisconsin? I consider myself hailing from
2: Wisconsin.
1: Well, I am from Wisconsin, too. And I guess hailing is the right word because we know that it does hail there. There are <laughs> oh, ice definitely. storms and all <laughs> yeah. other sorts of weather phenomena. Uh, but now you're down in Louisiana. And I wonder, how do you compare the birding in Wisconsin with that in Louisiana? So I... Really didn't get into a lot of birding
2: until I got down here in Louisiana. I mean, obviously, growing up in suburban life, there were birds. Um, We had a lot of trees in our backyard. But most of the birds that I remembered were things like blue jays and cardinals and robins were kind of the main birds that I have memories of growing up. And there's a huge amount of diversity of birds down here especially since we're on the Gulf Coast. Uh, And so there are so many birds here in Louisiana that it's such a fun time during the spring and fall to see the migration and the different species that are showing up. And we're seeing some issues with climate change and the disappearance of our coast, that there are quite a few bird species that do nesting out on the islands or on the marshes that are kind of the coastal areas of Louisiana. And with that land disappearing, we're seeing some of those species
1: really struggle to keep going and survive and reproduce. So the, the birds that are um, count on that wetland at mm-hmm. the mouth of the Mississippi River Delta, that land is slipping away into the Gulf. And so they're threatened. Mm-hmm it's a challenge to save the Louisiana wetlands. Do you feel like people are coming around to understanding why they're so important?
2: I hope so. There are a lot of researchers down here in all disciplines that are really trying to address this problem because it spans multiple ecosystems and different organisms from small little plankton that are floating around in the sea all the way up to larger animals like birds and fish. Uh, And I'm hoping that attention is being brought to the general public about how much coast we're actually losing. And there are things that we can do to try to stop that from happening, but it's going to take a concerted effort from a lot of people
1: to try to make that happen. Well, Cassandra Ford, thank you so much for sharing your birding experiences with us.
2: Well, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun.
1: Cassandra Ford is
4: a Ph.D. candidate in evolutionary biology at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. The kind of affection for birds that Cassandra has has inspired campaigns to save them. For example, the Migratory Bird Act of 1913 was passed after ardent
0: bird lovers protested the killing of egrets and other wading birds. You know, when pictures of the plume trade and pictures of the orphaned egret chicks were published, people were up in arms.
1: Next, how the modern conservation movement took flight. This episode is for the birds, but not only for them.
4: You're listening to Big Picture Science. Well, humans have long sought the peaceful company of birds, they've also used them with devastating effect.
0: Birds have suffered from our attention mostly because they're beautiful. They've been hunted for their feathers for millennia. My name is Michelle Nyhaus, I'm a science journalist and I'm the author of Beloved Beasts. They were probably the first vertebrate species to go extinct because when prehistoric humans were moving around the Pacific from island to island, they brought with them small predators, rats, cats, other animals that made quick work of these birds that you know after all had been living in peaceful isolation for many years and had had no reason to develop defenses so some of those first extinctions perpetrated by humans were, were really unintentional they were side effects of human exploration and colonization.
1: Fighting for life in an age of extinction is the subtitle of Michelle Nyhaus's book about the birth of the modern conservation movement Hunting brought an end to the passenger pigeon and nearly did the same for the bison. The conservation movement helped save the bison and many other threatened animals. But it was the disappearance of birds that motivated the early crusaders.
4: Some names associated with the modern conservation movement are iconic. Aldo Leopold, John Muir, Rachel Carson, for example. But Miss Nyehouse shares the work of nature lovers who are not household names. She also exposes the dark side of early conservationism, illustrating how its progressive ideas were complicated by the ethos of the 18th and early 19th century in which they were still firmly set.
1: Now, if you love birds, you might want to thank Harriet Hemingway. One of the fads during the Victorian era was the wearing of beautifully feathered hats. The slaughter of Florida egrets in order to make this headwear dismayed this Boston socialite, and so she got busy.
0: That's right. Harriet Hemingway was appalled by the plume trade that was really peaking in the late 1800s. And it was having a devastating effect on birds because at the same time, fashion was democratizing. So these these fancy hats were available to middle class women as well as very wealthy women. One estimate is that the trade was killing about five million birds a year. So while these hats were worn by women, the opposition to the plume trade was also led by women, including... Harriet Hemingway. She read about the effect on egrets, and then she was very canny in how she organized opposition to the plume trade. She had these a series of strategic tea parties in which she persuaded her, her fashionable friends. Maybe this isn't such a great idea to buy hats. And then she reinvigorated the Audubon Society, which was dormant at the time. And then, on, and only then, invited some prominent men to lead the Audubon Society because she knew, given the prejudices of the time, she wouldn't be taken all that seriously as a public figure. But she really retained the power behind the throne in the Massachusetts Audubon, and she was a big part in in passing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which still stands today and protects many of the birds we value and, and uh, even even take for granted in some ways today. We wouldn't have them with, were it not for her work and the work of many other activists at that time.
4: Well, let... Let's get to that. I mean, how would you characterize the prevailing attitude toward animals and wildlife that existed at this time, the, the latter part of the 19th century, in the era of Harriet Hemingway?
0: Well, it was, you know, the conservation movement, of course, people have conserved species in various ways since the beginning of human history. I mean, have restrained their hunting so that they would have enough game for the next season. That They've done that sort of thing on a local level. But the modern conservation movement, in the sense of the movement that that wanted to protect species from extinction and wanted to protect species in abundance on a global scale, that really didn't get started until the late 1800s, because people came very slowly to the realization that humans were actually capable of driving species extinct by human actions. People were aware of bird extinctions on individual islands, and then toward the end of the 1800s, they became increasingly aware of the decline of the American bison which was being slaughtered in huge numbers on the North American plains. You know, people knew extinction could happen, but the idea that, you know, physically large or showy, really abundant species could go extinct forever, it just really took a while for people to get a gut sense that that was possible, that that humans were that powerful.
4: Let's get to uh, William Hornaday, who was Credited with saving the first animal from extinction, the American bison. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, of course, you know, people could travel across the Great Prairies in train cars, open up the window, and shoot the bison. And suddenly, from one year to the next, I think it was in the 1880s, essentially all the bison were gone. Is that why this guy William Hornaday got involved? Is that how he noticed that there was a sudden decline?
0: Well, he noticed. I mean, people had been noticing that the numbers of bison were declining. I, I mean, Native Americans and First Nations who depended on the bison had been noticing for years that the numbers were going down. And then Hornaday was, ironically enough, a trophy hunter and a taxidermist who came to work at the National Museum. What would then what would become the Smithsonian Museum? And when he arrived. In the 1880s, he noticed that there were no decent bison specimens in the museum collection. So he wrote to people all over the plains and said, "You know, do you have bison skulls or bison hides or or any bison specimens in good condition that we could use for our collection?" And people wrote back and said, "Good luck. You know, we don't. There's nothing left." And Hornaday, kind of unusually for his time and unusually for someone of his background, was really shocked by this, and and really it woke him up. As he said, he I think he said he he had felt as if he had received a blow to the head with a hammer, and uh, he took it upon himself to protect the bison. But what mechanism
4: did he have to do this? I mean, other than putting bisons on the back of the nickel, what could he do? Even if everybody agrees, what do they do about it?
0: Well, what he did was he became the director of the Bronx Zoo, and he raised a herd of bison in the Bronx. Uh, It took him a few years of trial and error, but by the early 1900s, he had a pretty healthy little herd of bison in New York, and he put them on a train car and sent them to Oklahoma, where they did wonderfully on the prairie. And that herd that was reintroduced in 1907 has now seeded several very large herds that are on public lands throughout the US, and they are now seeding herds that are being returned to tribal lands.
4: So so those buffalo on the plain are all derived from this zoo. Uh, that may explain why they all have New York accents, I'm not sure. You write about the so-called dark side of conservationism, the racism, the colonialism that undergirded the science. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, well, Hornaday is a good example of that. I mean, even though I think we have a lot to be grateful to him for today, you know that said, his reasons for saving the bison were all mixed up with nationalism. He saw it as a symbol of national pride. He saw saving the bison as a way to preserve white masculinity, which was seen as widely seen as being under threat because so many young men were you know withering away in in office jobs rather than you know working out on the frontier, shooting red blooded animals. And then he was also very callous about the effect of the bison decline on Native American tribes. And and in fact, there was a lot of evidence at the time and, and still more now that, that white market hunters were primarily responsible for the bison decline. But he, he didn't believe that and insisted that. Native Americans had been primarily responsible for the devastation to the bison. So he, really, he was really quite blind to the real effects of the bison on the human beings who lived on the plains. So, you know, as I say in my book, the early history of conservation is full of people who did the right thing for the wrong reasons, and Hornaday might be the most vivid example of that.
4: Well, what about the opposite of that? People doing the wrong things, but for the
0: right reasons. Any examples? Maybe the most memorable examples of people doing the wrong thing for the right reasons are the ornithologists who dearly loved these beautiful species that they studied. And I mean, one of the most memorable examples of that, unfortunately, is ornithologists before the days of cheap optics, cheap binoculars, ornithologists often studied birds by shooting them, by shooting multiple birds and then studying their feathers up close using what were called skins uh, to get a closer look at these birds. And And Frank Chapman, who was an early founder of the Audubon Society, went in search of the Carolina parakeet, which was this beautiful green and yellow bird uh, that was native to the southeastern U.S. And, and it was known to be in decline, in fact, nearly extinct. And, and Frank Chapman just genuinely was, you know, he was passionate about birds and genuinely loved and admired them. And and he writes in his journal of how he struggled with these competing urges to both stop shooting the bird, and yet he also wanted to shoot just one more to get a closer look at it because he loved it so much. So (laughs) unfortunately, uh, the Carolina parakeet is now extinct, not because of Frank Chapman, but in part because of people like him
4: so when did conservationism become a mass movement when it when it became cool to uh you know be interested in this? I mean, was there a specific moment that you can point to?
0: Well, a couple of different moments, you know, as I was just saying before before cheap binoculars, people didn't really bird watch for fun because you couldn't get a very good look at a bird just by walking by, but but once that became possible to take a pair of binoculars out into the woods and see these really beautiful birds, birding became a very popular pastime, and that had a lot to do with making conservation, and specifically the Audubon movement, a mass movement in the early 1900s. And then later on, Silent Spring uh, by Rachel Carson, which brought attention to the dangers of DDT for birds and other species of wildlife, that is usually considered the beginning of the environmental movement, which has slightly different concerns than the conservation movement, but definitely overlaps with it a lot. Have
4: the goals changed in the weight given to, for example, saving a habitat or ecosystem over saving a particular individual species? Can they be effectively linked in the mind of the public?
0: Oh, definitely the the priorities have changed of the environmental movement and the conservation movement. I think. We were talking about William Hornaday and his concern with the bison. The science of ecology was so young at the time, uh, he didn't have a sense of how this single species called the bison interacted with other species on the prairie. But as the science of ecology matured and conservationists as well as biologists became more aware of those interactions in the 30s and 40s, it became clear that conservationists needed to protect not only, you know, these iconic species that they were concerned about, but also their habitats and the other species they depended on. So that's been a big change. I think it's not as much about protecting those single species as it is about protecting relationships.
4: Michelle Nyhaus, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Michelle Nyhaus is a science journalist and the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. All right, Seth. Well, what is the big picture here in this episode about the birds?
4: Yeah, well, it's a big picture about small organisms. These birds are amazing, Molly. I mean, they're born to navigate. They're born with Google Earth in their brains, and, and their metabolism
1: is so incredibly efficient. And the other thing that we're learning is that how we live is affecting how they live. Yeah.
4: One of the good things today is that we actually realize we can wipe out species. You know, in the 19th century, the people were shocked to learn that, I guess. Uh, and, you know, the Victorians were always trying to improve things. And suddenly they were confronted with the fact that they could lose some of their uh, most uh, charismatic species. You know, it's a beautiful day. So I think I'm going to grab my binoculars and go out looking for some birds, actually. Oh, and take my cell phone. So I'll be able to identify them and put them in a database somewhere. Maybe that will do some good.
1: Well, we could not do the show without the non-migrating minds of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
4: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky, David, and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates how biological evolution produces complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and a big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon.
1: Special thanks to some of our Patreon velociraptors, Carl from Switzerland, DC Cassandra, and Sean McDowell.
4: You too can join us on Patreon and hear your name in the credits, get access to exclusive bonus material, and more at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. The show wouldn't fly without your support.
1: Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of our show. And if you haven't already, well, we hope that you subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter, which is an appropriate thing to do after an episode about birds. This episode of Big Picture Science is called For the Birds, and we want to thank them for lacing the world with beauty and filling the skies with song.
2: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from
3: TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch